I Brain Map by Rita McInnes. Chapter 11 Secondary Activation. In this chapter, I describe common patterns of secondary activation. Secondary activations are your reactions to the experience of primary activation and include cognitive and behavioural reactions or impulses and relational orientations. They usually develop to avoid, control or somehow manage the distressing internal states of primary activations. Many people are more aware of secondary activations than primary activations because when the activation cycle has occurred for many years, These habits of reaction or secondary activation become entrenched and the original feelings and reactions that they were intended to avoid become invisible and less accessible. Secondary activation can cover up the primary activation. Adaptive or misadaptive. Secondary activations are typically adaptive responses relevant to the age you were and the resources you had at the time traumatic or overwhelming events occurred. But over time, they can become maladaptive, or what I call misadaptive. In other words, they miss the point or become a bigger problem, like Jack's drinking, than the primary activation they were intended to fix. The reason I use the term misadaptive instead of maladaptive is because maladaptive assumes it's bad or wrong, ignoring the original purpose, which was to adapt to the overwhelming experiences with limited resources. The difference between whether something is adaptive or misadaptive is how much choice you have. Social anxiety is a good example of how an adaptive secondary activation over time becomes misadaptive. It makes sense to avoid something that's distressing, such as a snake, but what works in the external environment is often not effective when it comes to the internal environment because you can't escape yourself or your internal experiences. For example, in the beginning you may avoid parties, external, because they make you feel anxious, internal. Parties trigger your anxiety, Avoiding parties helps reduce your anxiety in the short term, so in the beginning it's adaptive. But over time you may use avoidance of places and situations more and more to manage your internal distress because it works. Next you avoid supermarkets and driving because they make you feel anxious. It works because you don't have to face your anxiety. Then you stop leaving the house and finally you won't leave your bedroom. The fear is driving your choices. In this way, avoidance becomes increasingly misadaptive because you have less and less choice. Your intention or how you choose to respond gives the brain the message about experience for future reference. So even though a particular behaviour may appear the same from the outside, such as leaving the room, it may be done with the intention to avoid or the intention to find a different way through an entrenched pattern in a relationship, which each give the brain a very different message. Common types of secondary activation. Note that these reactions aren't all behaviours. Some secondary activations are internal reactions, such as suppressing or controlling uncomfortable emotions. There is no neat divide between secondary activations. Many overlap and are a combination of avoid and control and are unique for each person. 
Common secondary activations include the following reactions. Avoid escape reactions. Avoid escape reactions can be internal, such as suppression of intense emotions, or external, such as behaviour that avoids situations, or a combination of both, as in social anxiety. Alcohol and drugs, which are our most socially accepted strategy to avoid escape, often referred to as self-medicating. Technology as an escape is fast becoming an even bigger addiction than substances. Any compulsive behaviour, such as shopping or overeating, denial, suppression, repression, minimising or denying the impact of a problem, such as ignoring a significant symptom or health issue, no, I won't, don't want to, resistance to trying anything helpful. Many thinking patterns are based on avoidance such as wishing and hoping, wishful thinking, living in fantasy. This avoid-escape thinking becomes problematic when it inhibits your capacity to accept and deal with current situations. Wishing and hoping means that instead of dealing with events as they are, you wish they were different. This seems innocent enough, and it may be, but it can become misadaptive if it means you avoid dealing with a current situation that's uncomfortable or difficult, but instead cling to an idea of how you think things should be, leaving you perpetually frustrated and disappointed. It may be associated with a whole fantasy life or just a thinking style, which might be adaptive if you write fantasy, but not if it stops you taking steps to getting a job or taking that course, because you'd rather dream about your amazing career in design or as a musician. Mary, when wishing and hoping are part of the problem. I feel overwhelmed and just wish it would go away. So you feel overwhelmed and start wishing, but don't do anything about it? Yeah. Sounds like wishing keeps you in a passive state, Mary. It's a childlike response that was all you could do as a kid. Instead of taking action, you drop into that habitual reaction. Do you know what you're telling yourself when it happens? This shouldn't be happening to me. It's not fair. I don't deserve this. I wish it'd stop. There's something interesting here. It sounds like some belief that if you're good and do the right thing, then good things should happen. Yeah, and if they don't, it's not fair. So we have something about fairness and justice here too, that the world should be fair and just. Do you think the world is fair and just, Mary? No, I know it's not. I've lived too long to think that. So you don't believe it rationally, but it's like a default position laced with wishing and hoping, like little girl thinking. And if you're good, the tooth fairy will come and Santa too. Yeah, I feel like one of those little girls... I feel like I can't do anything. I just want something like magic to happen. I don't like feeling like that kid that's always overwhelmed and can't change anything, but I still wish it would stop. Just notice that wishing, Mary. 
Oh no, now I am not allowed to say sorry or wish for anything either. Again, Mary, this isn't about stopping what you're doing or making it wrong, which doesn't help. It's about getting curious because that changes the message you're giving the brain, remember? Hard to get that one. Hmm. Not sure I'll ever get this. Awareness is the first thing, that's all. Just noticing this, just this, whatever's happening right now. We don't want you to make it wrong, that's all. And sometimes seemingly harmless things are the tip of an iceberg. So let's just keep an eye on wishful thinking, because I think it's a sign of activation. Control reactions. When your inner world feels scary or out of control, you're likely to put energy into trying to control the environment, especially to eradicate anything that triggers a reaction in you. It may also take the form of internal control through ignoring, denying, defending or suppressing emotions that are uncomfortable. As you can see, there is no clear divide between avoid and control reactions. Some specific manifestations of control reactions include perfectionism or perfectionistic thinking. For instance, I can't be happy or okay unless everything is just right or perfect. Or, there's no point even trying if I can't do it perfectly. Often perfectionism is driven by anxiety. Fix it, got to get it right, got to work it out, got to get it. This can become know-it-all thinking. Many of us have an inner Mr. or Ms. Fix-it. Being driven in any way from working excessively or being driven to meet some particular standard, either your own or someone else's. Control reactions can inhibit integration by keeping you constantly looking for what's wrong with a view to fixing or making it perfect. This pattern says that while there's any activation at all, you must have failed or this approach is failing because all attention is on what's wrong. You could call this what's wrong with this picture approach, where you have to examine everything to find the mistake, the gap or lack, the speck of dust or lint, the something missing, and usually you can find something. It seems harmless enough, but it may be one of the biggest blocks to effective change and integration because focusing on the problem gives the brain the message that there is something wrong and keeps it on high alert, which maintains the physiology of anxiety and thereby creates a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mary, trying to work it all out. What I notice, Mary, is how hard you work at trying to work it all out in your mind. Like you have to know and get it right. Yeah, I just want to know. Is that so strange? Not strange, quite normal. The trouble is, it may not be helping you manage the internal distress you experience. It may even be getting in the way of what's helpful. Because when you get anxious, you seem to get hooked on trying to find what's wrong and wonder why, why, why. Does it help, do you think? Not really. I usually end up in a spin. Sometimes when I've reread my journals, I can see I'm just going around and around in circles. 
And then I end up exhausted and usually, well, I go to the fridge for help. Ah, refrigerator therapy. So you know overthinking or ruminating doesn't really help, but the impulse to work it out continues and maybe a bit of wishful thinking to boot. Yep, I go over and over things. I want to fix things, especially with the children and now the grandchildren. It sounds like one way you coped as a kid was to become Little Miss Fix-It, work it all out and fix things, especially for everyone else. But the emotions connected to the survival, child brain or to people need soothing, not fixing. Yeah, the kids get mad at me sometimes when they tell me their problems and I try to sort them out for them. I just want to help. And feeding everyone always helps, of course. Yes, eating something is usually soothing and distracting and seems to be tagged with fixing for you, Mary. Would you be willing to notice the impulse to analyse and work things out and call it activation? If I can see it happening, I can, but usually I just go into it automatically. Yes, that's the thing about activation. It can be hard to notice it as it happens. I'd like to encourage more curiosity and less of the gotta work it out, get it right. I'll try. The other thing is that as soon as the brain thinks it's worked it out or got an answer, it gets lazy on us and just pulls out an old map and says, oh, she's doing that old map and I've already got one of those. It's curiosity and attention that are the key elements in brain change, so let's keep them active. Okay, I'll try just to stay open to what you're telling me. And just notice if you get hijacked into trying to work it out or get it right. Struggle. Struggling against what is happening is often a combination of avoid and control. This is a big inhibitor to integration and can take many forms. What struggle does is keep the lower brain in high alert, vigilant. The struggle can be internal or struggling against circumstances in the environment. Learning to accept is the ground of change and the antithesis of struggle. Acceptance isn't about passively tolerating things, but an active response that includes how you orient to an event or situation. We'll discuss this later. Carl Rogers said, The curious paradox is that when I accept myself as I am, then I change. Either or. Technically, Either or belongs in thinking, but I've put it in a special category of its own to highlight how you can get caught in such polarities as struggle and surrender. Acceptance and even mindfulness techniques are sometimes misinterpreted as giving up, giving in, doing nothing or just grinning and bearing the distress and are seen as the opposite of only one other position, struggling against the situation that's causing the distress. Neither giving up nor struggling is effective in brain change. If you struggle, as I said, the brain goes into alert or alarm. But if you just give up and do nothing, the cycle is perpetuated because nothing changes. 
the brain will keep doing what it's always done unless it's interrupted during the activation, like interrupting a live broadcast. Between these two, surrender and struggle is an active acceptance that recognises things as they are and moves with them and through them, like riding a wave. Defences and Defensiveness Defence is a primary activation, a protective reaction like fighting to defend ourself, our territory or our family, just like a mother lion protecting her cubs. Defences also develop as secondary activations in an attempt to protect us from feeling vulnerable, which is how we usually experience primary activations. While this is adaptive, it can become misadaptive if it becomes extreme or gets attached to something that perhaps doesn't require protecting, like protecting your pride in the same way you might protect a small child, as if it's life and death. A common form of defence is the critic, an inner or an outer critic. Being critical of yourself or others is usually a type of defensive protective reaction. Often the critic starts out, usually through a parent or adult, protecting you by helping you learn to avoid making mistakes or making a fool of yourself. Over a lifetime, it can become so crippling that you never take a risk or try something new or allow yourself to play and be creative because the critic cuts you down at the knees before you can step forward. Or you may be unwilling to take on healthy criticism or feedback or even learn new ways of doing things because your defensive reaction works so automatically. Being able to discriminate between feedback or constructive criticism that is valuable and criticism, another's or your own, that is undermining or diminishing is difficult, if not impossible, when the inner critic becomes overly powerful because it's entangled with survival. The overs. Anything that begins with over, meaning extreme or a disproportionate reaction given the current situation, belongs in this category. The overs are driven by lower brain activation and we respond to a situation as if it's life and death or keep going over and over something because the brain is in split brain mode and no messages are getting through. Overthinking. This is the big brain spinning its wheels. Thoughts are usually repetitive and frequently irrational or not helpful but stuck in an old story. Overreacting. When reactions are disproportionate to an event. For instance, you may feel murderous rage when someone takes your parking space. Oversensitive. This is associated with hyperarousal and hypervigilance. It's like having no skin. Everything seems to affect you deeply and can easily overwhelm you because your system is already switched on, so it doesn't take much to create an intense reaction, like the neighbour's dog barking on Sunday morning. Over-talking. Compulsive talking or an inability to be quiet and still is usually an indicator of internal discomfort or distress as you try to release or avoid the internal distress through talking incessantly. Over-identification. You may identify with certain emotions, thoughts, beliefs or a story of what happened to me or I'm always X or I'm never Y. 
It may be excessive identification with work or a role, I am a mother or I am a teacher. You can become over-identified with your story so that you live out of that story and allow it to define you and shape your life. For instance, the story of the victim or rescuer may dominate your life. Mary's a good example of over-identification with her role as carer or little mother. She sees this as who she is and therefore has little choice about how she responds. For her, the role has been bound up in threat alarm, making it impossible for her to say no without invoking a sense of impending doom. Stuck or Sticky Thinking Sticky thinking is like a sticky web the mind gets caught in. Any repetitive thinking, when you go over and over the same thought or become entrapped in a cycle perpetuated by your thinking, is sticky thinking. There are numerous sticky thinking patterns, more commonly known as thinking styles. Black-white or right-wrong thinking, which reflect a split-brain system. All-or-nothing thinking. Personalising, taking everything personally. Catastrophic thinking, which matches internal experience rather than a current event. Either-or thinking, which was discussed above. One of the reasons I don't use top-down techniques, such as cognitive therapy or self-talk, with people initially to manage these thinking patterns when the system is stuck on overwhelm is that these sticky thinking patterns usually reflect the internal state. You could say that sticky thinking is the effect or symptom that perpetuates what is happening rather than the cause. Take the person who's had a car accident, for instance. After they recover, when they get in the car and attempt to drive, they might have a panic attack or imagine a catastrophic event. In reality, it's unlikely they will have a car accident, but each time they get in the car, their body remembers that they can have an accident. In this case, I use a bottom-up approach, working with their body states or direct experience to reduce current distress because it's their body remembering the catastrophic feeling associated with driving a car that's generating the catastrophic thoughts. Reducing the overwhelming distress in the body often changes the thinking brain, which adapts as it integrates the traumatic memories. On the other hand, if we approach their catastrophic thinking by challenging the thinking or looking for evidence, it's likely that they'll focus on the fact that they can and have had a motor vehicle accident. Even if they cognitively tell themselves it probably won't happen again, their body is likely to continue to experience overwhelm as if something catastrophic is about to happen. To ignore this or try to override it can create an internal struggle or conflict which perpetuates the activation cycle. Storied mind. Storied mind refers to the stories we get stuck in. Although making stories about what happens is the usual process of the mind-brain and part of integrating experience, using the term storied mind describes how the stories can get stuck. Common stuck stories are the victim myth, that is, I'm a victim, always a victim, blaming, or making someone else wrong. 
Many classic fairy stories and myths could fall into this category, such as frog kissing or believing that if you love someone enough, they will change. Good versus evil, heroes and heroines or villains, happy ever after. Waiting to be rescued, loved, freed, healed, saved, enlightened, to name a few. Wishing and hoping stories, including if only or if, when, dot, 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 then, reinforce the non-acceptance of whatever is happening, watching and waiting for some perfect moment or experience out there somewhere, if only you could find it. Wishing and hoping or grabbing onto a story that doesn't fit with current circumstances can keep you feeling powerless because your orientation is towards the wished-for story and not on dealing with the reality of how things are. The entitlement story is a fierce kind of wishing and hoping that keeps you stuck in expectations that the world should behave in the way that suits you and give you what you want, expect or demand. And when that doesn't happen, rage is often the result because how dare they? A giveaway sign that you're operating from storied mind is using words like always, never, can't. Secondary activation in relationship. All of the above patterns of reaction can have expression in relationship. Not just your relationship with others, but also your relationship to self, to body, to food. You can have avoidance or control reactions, high expectations of another or of yourself, or get caught in an either-or struggle between giving up or controlling. I don't want to define every pattern of reaction, but instead invite you to become more curious about your reactions as they arise. How you try to control or avoid situations, where you get into struggle against what's happening, or where your critic operates. This isn't a tick box, but a journey of discovery into yourself. There is one issue that needs a special note, and that is your relationship with self, and especially identity. Sense of identity can become entangled with past trauma or over-identification with being a victim-survivor. This can make integrating past trauma and all the protective layers of secondary activation particularly difficult to integrate because you've come to think it is who you are. And if that dissolves, what is there? Who are you? If the answer seems like it might be nothing or nobody, there can be a terror of the abyss of nothing that you face as the brain integrates. This is like a space that can feel interminable when you're in it. When the old patterns start to fall away, but the new insight or pathway hasn't yet emerged. It can be frightening and discombobulating. Identity issues are complex for many who experienced early trauma because orientation is outward. There are two reasons for this orientation, hypervigilance or watchfulness, And because the body feels dangerous and feelings seem overwhelming, so you learnt to avoid contact with the internal environment and to mistrust its messages. This creates an external orientation or focus of attention with minimal or no self-referencing. How do you know who you are if you're outside looking in? 
That's how many people experience themselves when there has been early trauma or overwhelm. The movement of integration takes you into self through direct body experience, but this can feel alien in the beginning, which is why it's so important to have support. Mary, how do I tell when I'm activated? So when I notice a secondary activation, like being an extreme helper, I'm activated by fear or some discomfort, but I go into the helping and controlling thing. Is that what happens? Let's look at a specific example, Mary. That might make it more concrete for you. Can you think of an example? Well, Don and I took our grandchildren, Toby and Will, to this theme park on the weekend. Don's really rough with the kids sometimes and I hate it. He had Will on this swing thing and was making it go really high. Will loved it and Toby was laughing at them. I could just see an accident happening. I was getting lunch ready but I went over and started yelling at Don. But I was trying to keep my voice down because there were people everywhere, other nice, quiet people sitting serenely under trees. I wanted the ground to swallow me up. It ruined our whole day. It's tricky, isn't it, because there was a possible danger that someone could have been hurt. There are a jumble of complex emotions and activations that are all tied up in the actual events when you felt you needed to protect your grandchildren. There's the helper and also the defender of your pups and out pops the critic to join in and then your controller comes out as well because you feel scared. What a party! And then shame and guilt arrive to throw a bit of fuel on the flames. So much going on. Don's so careless. I hate the feeling of wanting to disappear. I felt so powerless. So you want to find a way to deal with the current situation without all the old maps, but the brain needs some maps to orient to, to make sense of things. It always uses past experience to deal with current events. We just want to make sure it's using the best map for the current situation and that the map is flexible and continually being updated. So how do I tell if I'm activated or if my concern is real? Well, there's no neat divide or right answer to this. I'd say you could initially assume you're activated, especially if it's an extreme response. We don't want to stop these reactions. We just want you to be able to manage them and reduce your distress, your activation, enough so that you can access your big brain resources and make the best choice in any situation. A telltale sign of activation is a compulsion. You feel like you don't have a choice. But of course, if there is immediate danger, you need to act. No, I didn't have a choice. I was over at the swing yelling at Don before my feet even touched the ground. I hardly remember the rest of the day. I just stuffed down lunch. A story might help you make sense of this, Mary. This is my story. I call it the dog story, and it's something that happened to me recently. My dog story. It's a foggy midwinter morning and I'm walking alone. As I get further along the track away from any houses, a picture starts flashing through my mind of being attacked by a dog. 
I try to shrug it off and talk myself out of it, but I start feeling a bit anxious. I tell myself it's silly, but at the same time I start looking around through the mist and shadows to make sure no dogs are lurking there. As I keep walking, I have flashes of being attacked by the dog. The images get more vivid and more frequent, but I can't work out where they're coming from. What the hell's the matter with you, Rita? You're being ridiculous. Calm down. There's nothing going on, I tell myself. But now it's turned into a pit bull terrier. I can see its pink eyes watching me and its powerful jaws and it's in Technicolor. Now the dog is jumping at me. My heart's pounding and it's hard to breathe and I want to scream. Then I realise I'm a long way from any houses and no one will hear me if I scream. Now I see the pit bull attacking me on the ground. The whole time this is going on, I'm telling myself not to be so ridiculous because I know I'm imagining it, but I keep looking around. It feels intensely real because my body is behaving as if I'm actually being attacked by a pit bull. Although I keep trying to challenge my thinking as irrational, I don't believe myself, or at least my body and emotions don't believe me. I know it can happen that dogs attack because I was bitten by a dog while I was walking in the bush years ago. I know it's real, just like you know kids can have accidents. It doesn't help when I tell myself it isn't real because my body feels it is real. It's like telling an infant not to be scared because they're having a nightmare. Then suddenly I recognise that it's activation and I feel my anxiety start to go down. But I continue to scan the trees for wild dogs just in case. Each time I do this, my anxiety increases. Again, I remind myself that this is activation. Now that I know what it is, I can access some strategies I have. I give it a number, it's about a seven now, and I watch the ground, stones on the path as I walk, noticing the details. I put my hand on my solar plexus and gently rub the area of my body where I feel most distressed. I still feel a bit scared and at the same time I know where I am and that I'm okay and that nothing dangerous is happening right now. Now it's a five. I'm walking and watching and listening. I hear a bird and feel my feet touching and leaving the ground. As my body calms, I suddenly remember that last week a large black German shepherd came running up behind me, scared the bejeebas out of me. I heard this heavy breathing coming up behind me, turned and came face to face with the dog running towards me and not an owner in sight. I'd never seen the dog before and had no idea if it was friendly. It seemed weird that I didn't remember that incident during activation. It was as if my brain couldn't make the connection to what had triggered my flash forward until I'd calmed down. That's because the alarm part of my brain had taken control and everything else was less available or not available while my brain was screaming, danger, danger, run for cover. But once I could flick on the light and my brain started making connections, I remembered the big black dog running towards me. Flash forward is like a flashback, only it's in the future. Your body experiences 
an internal state of distress associated with the past and then projects it into the future and you imagine the details to make sense of the internal experience, usually imagining the worst or some catastrophe, but often not recognising the link with the past experience. Mary looking for something bad to happen. Oh yeah, that's exactly what happens. It's so real, I can almost see bad things happening. My imagination goes wild. That's why I got so mad at Don. Not only that, it's probable that you remember the times when something bad does happen because it confirms your belief or expectations. But if nothing bad happens, you soon forget it. It's as if you're watching and waiting for bad things to happen, as if you're oriented to accidents. The brain evolved to have a negativity bias to find the problem or danger. That sounds dreadful, like I'm looking for something bad to happen. It's not that you want it, it's just that your body is remembering or playing the same old trick and you're re-experiencing it as future based on the internal experience of now, which is based on yesterday or memory. Let's just say you're playing the dog story. I'm still not sure if the thing in the park was real or activation. Well, the experience was real. Your body was in a highly anxious state, and that's about as real as it gets. The question is whether your reaction was appropriate or helpful for the situation. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. I'm glad you're not trying to tell me I'm imagining things because it feels real. The eye-brain map isn't about not acting or responding to deal with what's real. It's about taking the sting or intensity out of the bite of lower brain reactions enough that you can bring your attention into the present and access your big brain resources to deal with things more effectively. Mary, important not to make activation wrong. The important thing is not to make activation wrong. It's just the way your brain wired itself in response to experiences in your childhood that were overwhelming you. It does help to think about it like that instead of the other. The other? That I'm damaged, crazy, you know, the mad grandma at the park. Okay, so now we're getting deeper into story and meaning making how your brain made the connections to patterns that repeated, how you made sense of things. Story is like a connective web that links up all the separate bits and pieces of experience and makes them into something coherent, like a map. The trouble is that when the system's fragmented, your stories can become fragmented too and stuck. So where a healthy system will keep upgrading a story or narrative as more information and experience comes in, when the system is fragmented, you can get stuck in old calcified stories. Then those stories drive you and dictate your response to the world. Like my story about being a carer? Exactly, Mary. So now let's talk about story and meaning making. <laughs> 